And if you're willing and able, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. We'll pick up our reading this morning where we left off last week, verse number 25, and our exposition this morning will be through verse number 30. We will follow along as I read. This is the Word of God. Apostle Paul writes to Philippi these words, Yet I considered it necessary to send you a Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. Because of the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Uh, pray with me one more time. Father, we come to you again in some measure because we cannot come to you enough. Father, we are in need of you this moment. And we come to you, Father, because we need counsel, we need help, Father, we need guidance, we need the very power of God. So, Father, I pray that we come with a humbleness of heart. I pray that that's collectively um, the temperament of this congregation. Father, the people that sit before me and even my own heart, Father, would you help us to examine it in this moment and uh, examine, Father, the, the true nature of it. Father, if we are haughty-minded, if we are prideful, if we are arrogant, Father, if we are apathetic, if we are indifferent, uh, may you correct it now, Father. May you rebuke us. Um, even as the word is read, we know that there's power in it and it will not return void, Father, that even just the reading of the word as it goes forth has the ability to bring dead men to life, to convict sinners, to um, produce joy, Father, to encourage our souls. So, Father, we would pray that you would accomplish that even now, um, in this moment, Father, that you would correct us, Father, um, in our minds and hearts to heavenly places. As we've read in the scriptures already, we've read of a, a, a magnificent and an exalted God above the heavens, who spoke the worlds into existence, who opened up the depths, who created every being and every creature just by the very power of the word of his mouth. And we beg you this morning, Father, that that same God would speak the word into our hearts, the one who opened the depths to Noah's day. We pray that he would open the depths um, of the very caverns of our souls. Father, that you would speak life to us, that we would hang upon it this morning, every word, not because of the eloquence of any man, but because it is a treasure, be treasured. So, Father, help us to come this morning hunger, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, even my own soul. Father, as the word is preached, preach to my heart, as the word is proclaimed, proclaim it, Father, to my own soul. And may I look forever more like Christ as a result of our gathering. Father, there's a text before us. Help us to be faithful in it. We have a lot of things we would desire to accomplish. But we will suffice if you will accomplish what you desire. And we will be pleased in it. So, Father, help us to go now. We commend you this time. Stay our minds. Steal our affections. And help us to look to Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated.
There is a common saying among men today, one that you're probably all familiar with, and that is that a picture is worth a thousand words. When we use that phrase, what we're saying is, is that a picture can be a tremendous and effective means to communicate some reality that must be labored at with words. Something that may take a thousand words to explain, one can save his words. If only he had a picture. It's an effective means of teaching. We generally, especially in the beginning of something, at the very ground level, need those pictures. We need those blueprints. We need plans. We need models. We need patterns to pattern our activities after, whether it's in building something, whether it's in crafting something. You know, it is so helpful um, to begin with some sort of a pattern. Most of us are not creative enough um, because we don't have the tools necessary in our minds um, to create something out of nothing. God has the ability to do that. Generally, man does not. Man oftentimes needs a pattern. And as time progresses, we can often throw the pattern off because we've learned the principles, we've learned um, the building blocks, we've learned the um, instruments by which we need, we have all the tools and the materials, and we can somewhat build upon um, that pattern that we once had. But initially, a pattern or a, an example, a model, is somewhat in, invaluable in worth. You know, you know that as well as I do. Someone can explain something for ten minutes, or I can preach a sermon for over an hour. You know, I don't know what he said, but you see a picture. Um, God can use it um, in your mind, naturally, spiritually, um, to just bring that reality home. And that was what he was saying. Not to say that the words are are not. Um, valuable. They are. And God can do more than enough with words. He's been doing it for um, all of time in history. I mean, it almost makes those words even more valuable. Why? Because now the words and the pictures go together and there's an understanding and a connection between the two. It's not as if because you saw the picture, you, you um, discard the words. It's actually the picture makes the words valuable. Um, it's helpful. It actually brings life to those in many ways. Well, when we ask the question, what does it mean to be a true disciple? And Paul gives to us more than just verbal instruction. Now, verbal instruction suffices. All God wanted to give us was verbal instruction. He has the power, the ability, the right to do that, and the power to bring that to life and illuminate it in our minds. Um, But Paul, oftentimes with his instructions, as he does here, with his exhortation and with his warning, with his clear instruction, clear commands. He then follows it with the utmost, superior, supreme picture that we could ever have of what true humility looks like, self-forgetfulness, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, and that's in Jesus Christ. And that really speaks more than a million words. I mean, to capture that in your mind is really to capture a picture that will speak to you not only throughout all this life, but throughout all of eternity. Paul, knowing our limitations, takes it even further than that. He doesn't stop there, but he applies to the Christian uh, life not only by giving us the preeminent example of Christ himself, but also by giving us pictures of faithful men um, throughout the church at Philippi, including his own self, that embody the character and the principles that were just described. And I've argued he's given us three particular men. Number one, himself. 
Um, in verses 17 and 18, he in some way embodies the principles that he's just instructed and the picture that he's exalted. He says, I'm willing to do that. Pour myself out as a drink offering. Not in a selfish, arrogant type of way, but in the truest way. He became a servant. Even to the point that he's willing to be offered upon their sacrifice and service of faith um, to contribute to their holiness and sanctification in the Lord. Secondly, he offers to us his son in the faith, Timothy. You pick that up in verse number 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. And what you see there is the kindred spirit to the Apostle Paul and the embodiment of true faithfulness among a young man who is under the tutelage of the Apostle Paul himself. And you too see in that the, the proven character of a man um, who embodies the sacrificial attitude and character of Christ himself. How does, he, uh, how does he get there? He gets there through discipleship. He gets there through um, the embodiment of, that of the example of the Apostle Paul. As Paul follows Christ, Timothy follows Paul, and thus Timothy is following Christ. Um, that, that he ascends in some sense... Not in a haughty or arrogant way, but to the place of embodying Christ through the path of discipleship. And what a blessing I pray that that, I know that that was to me to study that out. And I pray that it was to you um, as well. And then in verse number 25, um, today finally we reach the third picture I'm going to argue. And that picture is a picture of a man by the name of Epaphroditus. These pictures, as we gaze into them show in a way that what true manhood, true discipleship, true godliness, true faithfulness is, in a way that maybe you've not understood before. What it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. It teaches us that this is not only commanded, but it is too possible. It is too possible to be a faithful man in Christ Jesus. And to actually embody... Jesus Christ in such a way in His Spirit that it affects life. This is in some, some way how you get that uh, chapter 1 verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You walk away um, balancing the scales, recognizing that you are not what Christ saved you to be. And you're wondering, how do I get there? Paul puts before us these examples along with the Lord Jesus Christ and says that in your discouraging times, in your difficult days where you think it's an impossibility, know that it's more than a possibility. It's actually happened in the New Testament church. And God desires that for your life um, as well. So look at this example. So today I want to commend to you this man, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, for your consideration, and pray that God uses his example in the very Word of God, both in instruction form but also in picture form, to conform you into the very image of Christ. And as you conform your life to Him, as He follows Christ, you will, um, God will use it as a means to make you more like His Son. And that you would look at Epaphroditus, and hopefully other men like him. Men in this congregation that embody him. Men in your own family life that embody the attitudes and the character of men like these. That you would look at Epaphroditus and other men like them, as men worthy to follow. You might see Christ in them. That it might forever change you. And that it might cause you to desire to be such a man that other men too would follow after you. 
That you would see the weight and the responsibility that God lays upon every man, every woman, to be a certain type of man and a certain type of woman. That we don't live in this life in a vacuum or in isolation. I remember as just a 17-year-old boy, somewhat apart from God. Not somewhat, apart from God, totally. Um, And older men coming to me in certain leadership roles and saying, you're affecting those that are underneath you by your um, apathy, by your indifference in a social setting. And I need you as an upperclassman to step it up and to be an example of what a young man ought to be in the social um, environment that you're in. I can remember looking at him saying, I didn't sign up for that. You know, as an arrogant, rude young man, thinking that I could live my life in isolation, not realizing that, that although I didn't want to be a, an example at all, that was an example in and of itself. That it doesn't matter whether or not you desire to be an example to your children or to those that are around you or in your workplace. The reality is, is that you are an example nonetheless. And you're either a good one or you're a bad one. You're either a faithful one or you're an unfaithful one. And if you proclaim the name of Christ, then you bear um, His name as a delegate and a representative. And you preach a message to a lost and a dying world and a corporate body, um, something of what it means to, to, to carry yourself worthy or unworthily of the gospel of Christ. Um, you, either, you either honor His name by your life or you dishonor His name. I pray that you would see as men and that it would provoke you. You'd see as women and that it would provoke you. And that there is a great weight laid upon our lives. That we are to live in such a manner and to influence others for the cause of Christ. Because there is no middle ground. You're either pushing them onto Him or towards Him or you're pushing them away. So I pray that men like Paul, men like Timothy, men like Epaphroditus, men like myself, men like yourself, um, that we would see those men that would push us on to Christ to be the type of men that others um, can follow. So I'll give it to you in three points this morning. Number one, the man sent. will be the first point, verse 25. We'll look at the man. The man Epaphroditus. Number two, the reasons defined, verses 26 and 27. Why was he sent? Paul has a particular reason, and actually multiple reasons, why he determines it necessary to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi. And then number three, and he lays a command, a command given, lays a command upon those at Philippi to receive him. And as they receive him, he actually qualifies the manner in which they are to receive him. So number one, we're going to look at the man. Number two, the reasons define why the man was sent. And then number three, simply um, the command that's given. This is how you are to receive him, and this is how um, you are to receive him. So number one, the man sent. Who was the man? The man was a man by the name of Epaphroditus. Um, just a little context for you to bring us back up to speed. Paul wrote this letter. From Rome as a prisoner of Rome, criminalized for the cause of the gospel. You'll remember that. That Paul, when he's writing the book here, or the, the book, the letter, the affectionate letter, true letter to his people, his brothers and sisters in the faith, he's doing so while he's awaiting trial at Rome. He's not just in prison, he's actually awaiting trial, going to stand before Nero with the possibility of life or death. His neck is upon the chopping block in some sense, and the church at Philippi hears of the Apostle Paul's state with a tremendous affection for Paul. 
Because Paul was like a father in the faith. He was instrumental in planting that church, preaching the gospel. God used him mightily. Um, the, the, the church at Philippi um, hears of this, and they desire to be a minister to the apostle. They send a man some seven to 800 miles, one direction, to Rome to minister to the apostle Paul's needs. He comes bearing gifts. He comes ministering to the physical, material, but also spiritual and emotional needs of this man by the name of Apostle Paul. Um, this man is Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is sent by the church at Philippi across the world. As far as we know alone, he may have had people with him. We're not sure. Um, for the, same, the sole purpose of ministering to the Apostle Paul while he's in a Roman prison awaiting trial for the, with the possibility of death. We learn that also from Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. Indeed, I have all and abound, he says. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. Who? Philippi. They are a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So it's clear that Epaphroditus came bearing gifts to alleviate some of the burden that, that Paul had. At some point in the process, though, of caring for the apostles' needs, whether in the trek there or actually while Paul or while Epaphroditus was there, Epaphroditus becomes critically ill. Verse number 27. For indeed he, Epaphroditus, was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So verse 30 says something similar. That he did not regard his life for the work of Christ. He came close to death. In simple terms, Epaphroditus almost dies in pursuit of the mission to care for the Apostle Paul. Now somehow, subsequently, after this, word gets back to the church at Philippi. How? We're not sure. But we do know that news gets back to them that their messenger, their brother in Christ, Epaphroditus, was, um, was dying. He was lying just this side of death's door. How does, how does it affect them? It truly sorrows their heart. The Philippians are affected by this. Paul and Epaphroditus become aware that Philippi is aware that they think that Paul, that Epaphroditus is dying. And that determines, after evaluating all the facts, it actually determines, Paul determines it's necessary because of that to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi for the sake of the church. Now those are some of the historical facts. This is what we know, the narrative concerning what we have before us. And it's in light of this that we have preserved for us, I think, just a treasure, um, treasure box of valuable truths to glean from. So let's do that now. Um, that in the context of this narrative, um, we're going to pull out some things that Paul thinks, believes, that Paul, Philippi should know about Epaphroditus um, to their benefit, and subsequently does. 2,000 years removed, Paul tells us things about Epaphroditus um, that should instruct us, even though there may not be clear instructions. He gives him as an example, and even says um, later on that you should esteem him. You should respect him. I commend him to you. You should receive him. Not only in the, in the, in the corporate gathering, but in, in some way that as an example to be followed. That that's what we're going to see. So, we've looked at the context. Let's look at the Epaphroditus as a man. Epaphroditus as a man. First, we'll just, just comment on his name, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is a common Greek name. It's equivalent to something like John um, would have been in Jewish times. It's like Joe today. I mean, it's, um, 
It's something that would have been very common among the Greek-speaking people. It also has an abbreviated form of Epaphras. You'll find um, a, a man by the name of Epaphras in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. I'm going to just do a shortened version. Uh, but literally, this, this, this name could be translated devoted to Aphrodite. Epaphroditus. That's where you get the name Epaphroditus. Aphrodite. Aphrodite was a Greek goddess. She was a Greek goddess of love, a Greek goddess of beauty. Um, the Roman equivalent would have been the, the goddess of Venus. It would have been um, who the Greeks would have worshipped um, to receive um, the ability to love and the offer and presentation of, of beauty. And this is Epaphroditus' name. It may not be a big deal because names are not a big deal for us today. We just name people what we like. <laughs> you know, we, It sounds good. It's got a ring to it. We may throw a family name in there. Now, uh, we know that our names today don't necessarily dictate the type of character that we have. Um, but in these days, it, it would have been significant that Epaphroditus was named Epaphroditus because it would say something at least about the way that he grew up. Um, he grew up in probably, I don't think it's hard to speculate or hard to track out, in a, in a Greek culture with Greek parents who possibly worshipped the gods of the Greek culture, like Aphrodite, he, such that they would name their child um, the worshipper of Aphrodite. And what I'm saying is, boys and girls, men and women, is that he grew up being taught to believe in something other than the one triune God. He grew up in a God of Greek culture. He probably grew up foreign, um, in, a, in a foreign land, uh, worshipping false gods. And that in part is significant in his name. Aphrodite was one of many gods. He was taught to look to her. He was taught to serve um, her and the other gods to worship them in the very earliest of ages. In his most formative years, he would have been taught to worship um, these gods. Epaphroditus, as a little boy, little mind, would have been shaped at the very earliest ages by the Greek culture and, and taught to worship a Greek god. And now we see him here. At some point, um, through the ministry of the gospel, Epaphroditus was converted. The gospel came forth with the power of God such that now he's abandoned all of his former gods and God has, um, in some sense, brought him into the family of God and now he is a worshiper of God and a servant to the Most High God in the context of a local church. So his name would have been a twofold reminder. Every time somebody said Epaphroditus, it possibly could have reminded him of where he was, the gods he used to serve, as much as now the God that he does and the change that had happened in him. That what we see here is a brother in Christ, a man who has been saved by the grace of God, a true sinner who was converted um, and made a new man in Christ, thus that now he's left Aphrodite. And he no longer looks to her to know and to learn how to love his wife and his children. Now he clings to the one God, the one true God, um, Jesus Christ our Lord. So now that we looked at his name, let us look at his relationship. He says in verse number 25, Yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother. There's a lot to be said about that phrase. Paul could have simply said Epaphroditus, it turns out, guys, he lived. You know, nothing to worry about. He's coming back for you. But Paul goes out of his way to identify Epaphroditus in 
in many ways as a man worthy to be received. And part of that is based not only on his faithfulness in ministry, but his relationship to God and his relationship to Paul. Paul begins with this phrase, quote, my brother, my brother. Paul wants to highlight the intimate relationship that God has forged between these two men. That's what, term, that's what the term signifies. It's an affectionate term of true endearment. It's one of Paul's favorite words in relationship to the church. Now, I don't think he's using it flippantly. You know, today we use it flippantly. I've met so many people who just you know, call each other brother. It's like pal. It's buddy. Um, it's this or that. It's just a common way to refer um, to another person, friends. Um, Paul wouldn't have used it this way, especially with Epaphroditus. There is no way in the world. This would not have been the case for Paul, especially among the Gentiles. Actually, in Paul's former life, this would have not only been a huge mistake, this would have been a sinful grievance to call a Gentile a brother. We're talking about Epaphroditus, a former pagan, and we're talking about the Apostle Paul, the man who used to murder pagans. We're talking about a brotherhood that is forged in the blood of Jesus Christ such to make Epaphroditus a former pagan bowing to worship the God Aphrodite raised in that and the Apostle Paul, a man who is trained up religious zealot to kill men like that and now he's saying, this is my brother. This is him. Receive him as I've received him. You know? That, that in a former life, if Epaphroditus had came to help and aid the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul would not have received him as a brother. He would have looked at him like a dog. He would have seen him in a fashion that would have been lower than humanity. It would have been the epitome of racism and discrimination. He would have sought to put out his life. Why? Because in, in the Apostle Paul's blind um, zealot je uh, jealousy of, for his God, he saw fit to carry out executions, at least authoritatively, to give the call for such thing. He would have looked at Epaphroditus like a dog, but no, he doesn't here. He looks at Epaphroditus like a brother. A brother. He's saying Epaphroditus is mine. And he's not just a brother. We don't just share in some things. We share in everything. He is mine. One with whom at one time I would have considered unclean, unworthy, not even someone worthy of dignity and respect. He wouldn't have been welcome at my table. He wouldn't have been able to even clean my shoes, eat the scraps thrown off of my tables. And now I cherish him as a brother. Not only is he welcome at my table now, um, but I encourage him to kick back and to recline that I may wash his feet. We're not just talking about a, 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 low, a, a bringing up of level here to the same equality. Although we know that God um, um, proclaims that. That there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's no partiality with God. All that come to him are, are, are come to him by Christ are equal in nature and value and benefits. But the Apostle Paul won't see it like that. You know what the Apostle Paul will see? This man whom I wouldn't have had... Um, lick the dust off of my feet and I would have cast him out and even possibly put him to death. Now I will bring him into my house and I will become his servant. I will be his slave. The one whom was not able. The gospel comes into Epaphroditus' life, but as much as that, the gospel overwhelms the apostles Paul that there's an entire worldview conversion. 
that God changes his heart and now he looks at men differently. He sees men differently. And one of the men that he sees differently are, are, are the people within the household of God. He truly believes, Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. You see the immeasurable value that the Apostle Paul has for this man in this phrase, my brother. Considering what he was and considering who Paul was, God has leveled that out and brought him low. And now the Apostle Paul is in some sense embodying Jesus Christ as a servant even to Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is going to come. And he's going to continue to serve Paul. You know what Paul's going to do? He's going to serve Epaphroditus. And he's going to serve Philippi. That's what Paul's, that's what, that's what Paul's thinking is. You see how these, all of these men and this church is embodying the very character of Jesus Christ. What you're going to see is this triangle of just love and affection for one another and a, a desire to minister one to another all throughout this passage. You're going to see one trying to serve the other and then Paul's going to say, no, I need to serve you. You know? And regardless of state, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of this or that, Paul sees that defining um, value found in his relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a shared relationship. It's a common relationship in Christ. It causes them to value one another. Number three, we see his occupation. Um, And this could be number three and four. He's a companion in labor, fellow worker, and a fellow soldier. The Apostle Paul not only sees him in a common family, brothers in Christ, sharing a common father, but because of that, they carry on in their father's work. And that's what he says there. He says, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. He says, we're not only united as family, but we're united in labor. They're fellow workers. Paul doesn't look at him like, uh, Epaphroditus is someone less than him. He says, we're engaged in the same work and labor alongside. That's what the word means. It literally could be just translated work with. Fellow labor. We work with one another. We don't really know much about Epaphroditus. This is all we know in Ephesians or, um, and, uh, Philippians 2 and Philippians 4. But we do know a lot about Paul. We know... Super amount. I don't know how to say it. An, ab- an abundant amount of knowledge about the Apostle Paul. And that says something about Epaphroditus. Because if we know that Paul's work ethic, and we know what Paul labors for and labors in, and the work ethic that he had, and the, the cause by which he is called, and what he's striving after, for Paul to come and say he's a fellow worker in the faith, is to say um, something amazing about Epaphroditus. He's, he's putting him alongside him. He has such a, a value and a faith in, and confidence in Epaphroditus that he's willing to enlist him in the work and in the effort and bring him alongside him. You know? That says a tremendous amount about Epaphroditus and his work ethic. Because Paul doesn't just let anyone work alongside him. Um, and neither should we. 
And there's a certain type of man that Paul brings in with him. A worker, a laborer, a man who may not labor in the same capacity as the Apostle Paul, with the same mission as the Apostle Paul, but in some sense, he comes along aside and bears up the load with the, at Philippi. Paul is, is, is recognizing that he cannot care for them in and of himself alone. He's attached to a Roman guard imprisoned, and he enlists Epaphroditus, has full confidence in him, that they are accomplishing the same work, and Epaphroditus bears the load with him. Paul loves to identify those who do that. All throughout the gospel, uh, all throughout the, his letters, he's just identifying fellow worker, fellow worker, Priscilla and Aquila, other men, other women. And we see not only Epaphroditus' diligent effort commended, but we also see the apostles' humility and love. He recognizes in his apostolic position, he's not alone. He's not Pope. It all doesn't rest on him. He's not building the kingdom alone. I mean, he doesn't have a superiority complex. He knows that it's a body. He commends it as a body. And he knows that he's just, um, just, just a body part in the middle of it. And Epaphroditus is to be exalted. He's to be praised. He's a worker. He's no slouch. He's not lazy. And Paul is ready to receive him. And Philippi should be as well. And just a word of application, this is not in my final lines of application, Um, you know, it's okay to praise one another. Um, The Apostle Paul does it often. Um, Your children need praise. They need to be commended for the good that they do. Um, They need to be rewarded um, for the the positive things that they engage in. Um, It shouldn't just be mom and dad coming along, correcting them when they're wrong and they're never good enough. When they do well, they need to be commended. They they, they need to be offered some praise. And with maturity, they'll receive it well. If they don't receive it well, correct them. (laughs) That's the point. But but Paul is readily, um, often praising those to whom uh, much praise is to be given. Uh, Number four, he's a fellow soldier. Not only is he a companion in labor, not only is he a brother in Christ, but he's a comrade in arms. Not only are these two, like two men, two oxen pulling the same plowshares, workers and laborers together, um, in the same purpose of a landowner, but these are like two men in battle fighting a common enemy. This says a lot about. Epaphroditus. Again, Paul just doesn't bring anybody into his field bed. You know, you can't just trust trust any man with a gun or with a weapon, especially on your behalf. Most men would rather fight alone than bring some men in. Why? Because they can actually harm the mission versus promote it. When you have the right man, the right brother in arms, the right comrade who recognizes the enemy, who knows how to hold up a brother, who knows how to walk according to the Spirit, to war not according to the flesh, who knows how to pull down strongholds and cast strong arguments down and and bring them into subjection and obedience to Christ, um, that's a man to be commended. And that's what Paul does. He commends him. He's a single-minded man, 2 Timothy 2.3. You must therefore endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who is enlisted. Paul is conscious of the overwhelming odds against him, and he recognizes the faithfulness of this man Epaphroditus as a soldier in Christ, one to battle with, one that he has confidence in, one that he can labor alongside with against the enemy. He's a true man. Um, next we see his mission. His mission is tied up in these words, messenger and minister. 
Messenger and minister. And he says, but you're messenger and the one who ministered to my need. So in relationship to Paul, he's my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. In relationship to Philippi, he's your messenger and he's the one who you sent to minister to my need. So number one, his messenger, your messenger. The word messenger is actually the word apostle. Um, the word apostle is actually used in more than just a position, form, or a, an occupation like the apostolic authority. It's often used throughout the book of Acts and other places. Speak of someone who's simply sent. Um, they're sent and commissioned by someone or something, some organization, um, some entity for a particular purpose. And what he's saying here is he's saying that Epaphroditus was a man who was commissioned by the church at Philippi to go on a mission to minister to the Apostle Paul. The term there, minister, is actually the term we get our term liturgy from. Um, it's the word um, that would be used of priests laboring within the temple. Um, in a liturgical fashion, there was a service that they were to perform within the temple. Um, and it was their role to carry it out according to God's command. Um, Paul is commending them back to Epaphroditus, uh, back to Philippi, and, and, and exalting him in some capacity because of his faithfulness to go while he being sent, and also his faithfulness in ministering to the people of God um, there at, at, um, at Philippi. See, the apostle, uh, not the apostle Paul, Epaphroditus was not a man who was a rogue Christian. Um, he wasn't a man who was just being led by his feelings. He wasn't a, a freelance believer, detached from the people of God or a corporate body, um, just living out his will, God's will for his life insofar as he could determine it. Now, Paul, uh, as well as Timothy, or as well as Epaphroditus, are all connected um, to the local assembly, to the people of God in such a way um, that... that that he is being, he is submitting and being sent by a local congregation with elders and deacons. We've already already looked at that here at the beginning of uh, Philippi. What you see contained in this is a man who's submissive to church authority. I mean, he's not a man that's a lone ranger. He actually comes under the authority, and that is to be commended. Um, we live in a day in which submission to authority is just is just cast out the window. And you have Christians of every sort who are not attached to any local body and they're living out the Christian life as they see fit. It wasn't Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a man um, who understood that he was a minister within the local congregation in the way that God had required under the authority of pastoral um, leadership. And that's what's contained too, in the again, in the, 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 the term minister. Um, minister. It gives that picture of a temple. You know, well, you say, well, we're in the New Covenant. There's no temple now. Well, uh, you need to read Ephesians then. Because the temple of God has now changed. It's transitioned over to the people of God. That, that Paul is urging uh, Epaphroditus to pick up the Levitical priesthood in some form or fashion in interceding and in ministering to the needs of the church at Philippi. Jew and Gentile. They make up now the body of Christ. They are now lively stones. And what you see is Epaphroditus picking up the ministry as a priest within the house of God who to the people of God. This is a true man. This is a true man. A man who's a fighter. A man who has a, a direct cause. A man who's in submission to the authority of God and His Word. A man who sees his, his work to be labored out along with other brothers. This is a man. You want to follow? You want to know what a true man is? Follow Epaphroditus. Young men, you want an example to follow after? Look to a man like Epaphroditus. 
I mean, that we've lost the definition of what a man and a woman is in our culture. And not only biologically, I mean, but, but, but as a concept altogether. No wonder it's crept into the church. But no, no wonder it's crept into the culture. Um, that they're feeding off of one another and no one, and everybody gets to define it himself or herself. And those terms can't even be used unless I ask you what your pronouns are. You know, the self and thou self. Those are my pronouns, thee and thou. No. Um, I'm just kidding, it's he and him. It always has been, it always will be. And if I ever ask you for anything different, remove me from this pulpit because I've lost my mind. But with all reality, like that's the culture that we're living in. But, but, but man is defined not only biologically, but also spiritually. And Epaphroditus here um, is a tremendous example to be followed. Number two, I've given you the man's sin. You've seen some of his character. We'll see more. But under the second heading, the reasons defined. The reasons defined. And verse number 25, you read these words. After he commends Timothy to them and tells them what he's going to do, he says, Yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Jump down to 26. Why? Because he was longing for you all. And was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should sorrow and sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly. Why? That when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. So why did Paul send Epaphroditus back? Number one, to alleviate Epaphroditus' anxiety. In one sense, he did it because of Epaphroditus. Verse 26. Why did he say it? He said, I saw it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Why? Because he was longing for you all. He was longing for you all. The apostle is clear that Epaphroditus had such a connection and relationship built with those at Philippians that he had a deeply felt longing and affection for those at Philippi. Um, the same word is used in chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 4, verse 1. But maybe as a, a word picture, it might help you, especially the little ones. The same word longing here that Paul uses is the same word that Peter uses in this phrase. As newborn babes desire, long for. As a newborn babe, he says, desires and longs for the sincere milk of the word. As a baby feels when he gets hunger pains and begins to cry out and become restless, looking for and longing after that milk that is so necessary, um, that, that, that is the longing that Epaphroditus has. Nothing else will calm him down and satisfy his longing. That's the idea. Paul says that the condition of Epaphroditus that has led him to conclude to send him back to you, me to send him back to you, is that he, he's in such a condition of, of principled emotion and affection that it's affecting and distracting him on every level. He's longing after you. He's longing after you. It's highly emotive language. Not only that, he's distressed, the text says. He says, since he was longing for you all and was distressed. Why? Because he had heard, they had heard that you, he, he was sick. Um, the word there, distress, is even more vivid language. The only other two times it's used in scriptures is speaking of our Lord in Gethsemane in Mark 14 and Matthew 26. You'll remember in Mark 14 as we went through that recently when he takes Peter, James, and John with him and the text says that he became troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Stay here and watch. That this is an internal anguish of mind and the soul. 
It was a torture of the spirit in some sense that produced a mental distraction that caused them to go to the Lord. Um, it's something that speaks of homesickness, seasickness, of this type of internal anguish that causes you to be distracted from anything and everything else. Your mind can't be removed from it. You know? Why? Um, because they'd heard that he was sick. Um, Epaphroditus is just so um, tied in with the church at Philippi that he hears that they heard that he was dying. And they recognize, he recognizes that that's affecting the ministry back at Philippi. And thus he longs to go back with them to alleviate their concern. In the moment, he becomes a minister. And he thinks on them. And he worries about them because they're worrying about him. Um, thus Paul deems it necessary to go back. Um, not only that, but um, the first cause was for Epaphroditus. The second cause is for Philippi. Verse 28 and verse number 8. Um, Therefore I sent him the more eagerly. Why, Paul? That when you see him again, you may rejoice. And that I may be less sorrowful. Second reason that he sends him back is because um, he wants Philippi to, to return with their joy. To increase their joy. That you may rejoice, he says. If I send him back, yeah, I can imagine when Epaphroditus shows through, they think he's dead. I can imagine whenever it goes through, the burden is lifted. Imagine the joys on their face. Have you ever watched those videos online? Of like a military man coming home. He sneaks up behind the wife and the children on the basketball court. They don't even know he's coming. And I mean just the whole crowd erupts. You can imagine what it was like at Philippi. Like they're there worried. They're there praying. And not only is it just natural. But it's just affectionate. It's spiritual. And they're just, it's, just, it's just exalting to God. Because, because he mercied. That's what he says in verse 27. That it's, not, it's more than just a natural um, affiliation. For indeed he was sick almost unto death. But God mercied. It's actually a verb there. God mercied on him. God poured out his mercy on him. You can imagine as Epaphroditus shows up that yes, they're like lifting him up and they're, 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 they're in some sense celebrating his return, but how much more would they exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and God because God showed mercy upon him. And God showed mercy in that upon them. And Paul even says that. That one of the reasons that God saved, um, um, the, the, one of the practical reasons that, that God is instrumental in saving or one of the purposes that God accomplishes in, in sparing Epaphroditus' life is because of the Apostle Paul. He says, but God had mercy on him, verse 27, and not only on him also, but also on me in saving and in procuring and strengthening the, the, the body of Epaphroditus and his ministry to him, saving that, securing that, all of it together, he says, he says in some sense, that, that, that alleviated my sorrow. He says, and not on him also. So God not only mercied on him, he says, but God mercied on me. You know, when God was influential and actively working in his life, we're so tied together that, 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 that my burden, I was so burdened for Epaphroditus. When he was dying, um, there seems to be, it seems to have happened at least uh, nigh unto um, Paul's, um, Epaphroditus' arrival, because Paul is worried about him. Paul is sorrowing over him. Paul is in deep distress because his brother that came to minister to his needs, Paul's not thinking of himself now, but he's thinking of Epaphroditus and the sorrow is overwhelming. And when God mercied upon Epaphroditus and answered prayer, Paul says, God, God showed mercy on me that day. We are so tied together of a kindred spirit such that, 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 that when God um, affects him, I rejoiced. You know? 
Do you see yourself so tied together with other brothers that, that, that when God delivers on their behalf, that you enter into that and you say, man, God had mercy on me in that. You're really going to see, in, I think in this passage of Scripture, one of the clearest expressions of the, of the manifestation of brothers entering in empathetically with other brothers and sisters. Um, you're going to see true concern on every point. And what you're going to see is, is that when that happens to that brother, I, my sorrow is lifted and I rejoice. Like it doesn't seem like there's any benefit to me at all. Paul's losing Epaphroditus here. Paul, can you imagine that from a natural perspective? You're like, man, I almost lost him. I got him back. God delivered him to me, and now he can stay and minister to me. And there's no one else here at Rome other than Timothy. I'm about to send him away. What a benefit. And then he loses him again. You know? And Paul says, Amen to that. You know, how self sacrificing, how unselfish I'm the Apostle Paul is. He alleviated my sorrow and by having mercy upon Epaphroditus. It was mercy upon me. It was mercy upon me. Number three, and that's what he says. The, the, the third cause is that I may be less sorrowful. You know? Paul, his sorrow was just alleviated, but then he says, I have more sorrow. Why? Because three. Paul enters back into sorrow because he sees Epaphroditus' sorrow. And he knows the sorrow at Philippi. He enters in once again with their sorrowing. So Paul says, like he saved Epaphroditus, he had mercy on him, he mercied on me, he lifted up my sorrow, heaped upon sorrow. But somewhere along the way, the Apostle Paul saw the sorrow of Epaphroditus caused by the deep distress at Philippi, and it caused Paul sorrow. Paul enters in again once with them and weeps with them and sorrows with them. Thus, he says, it's needful for me to send you back, not only to produce joy in them, but also, in some sense, to alleviate the sorrow and produce joy in me. So that when I hear of your return and just the explosion and the exaltation of the mercy of God at Philippi upon you and them and the ministry that's going on, I will rejoice. Paul, you're in prison. Like, I know. This isn't about me. I'm fine, you know? And what you see is just this integration of men ministering one to another, entering into um, even the emotions and the empathetic life um, of one another. Paul anticipates, sends them back in anticipation that sorrow will be relieved, rejoicing will happen, God will be exalted, His will will be done. Um, that this was a special relationship. You know, it really was. Uh, number three, final point, we see the command given. So we see the reasons defined um, of why he sent them, and then you see the, the command given. And the command is this, receive them. It's simple. It means to take up, to welcome, to receive. Um, verse number 29, receive him therefore in the Lord with gladness, all gladness. Um, and hold men in such, such men in esteem. So he, tell, he, he commands them. It's an imperative. It, it's, not a, it's not a suggestion, um, but it's, it's, it's commendation. It's not as if he, he thinks that they'll receive him or not receive him. And I think he knows that they will. But then he goes on to instruct them in how to receive him. You know, sometimes it's just as, it's, it's just as important and more important, um, not only that we do something, but we do it in a way and that is appropriate, right? That motivation oftentimes is everything. Um, and the things that qualify our obedience oftentimes render it obedience or disobedience, right? So you can preach the God, Word of God in accordance with 
the command to proclaim, or you can witness, or you can testify, or you can train your children, whatever. And if you do it in the wrong way or wrong manner, um, it's actually disobedience. That's the, and I think that's the scriptural overtones. That's clear scriptural um, instruction. And so it's not only as important to obey, to formally receive him, but you are to receive him in such a way that honors God. How should they receive him? Well, they should receive him in the Lord. They should receive him with all joy. And they should receive him with um, esteem and honor. And then you'll see why. Why? Because of the work of Christ, he came close to death. Because of the type of man he was. He didn't regard his life. He goes on not regarding his life, not hazarding his life. He took a risk. Um, and the risk was his life. Why? To supply the, what was lacking in your service toward me. But when you see the type of man that, that has been presented to you, um, if you're spiritual, if you're logical, if you're reasonable, if you're understanding of the Lord, you'll recognize what a gift that you have in that man. You'll esteem him as so because of his work for Christ, even coming close to death, not regarding his life, and you'll receive him in the Lord. You'll receive him as a brother in Christ, in other words. You'll receive him as the Lord receives him. Um, not on the basis of this or that, um, but you'll receive him on the basis that the Lord receives him. And you'll receive him with all joy. You'll rejoice. And you'll receive him as a gift. You'll receive him with gratefulness. And you'll hold, and you're, you'll receive him in a way to hold him in honor and esteem. You know? But Paul goes beyond duty and argues on the basis of reason that all who like Epaphroditus, who display the true spiritual graces and the character of Christ in selflessness, in work, in sacrifice, in labor, in, in battle, um, to the point of even not regarding their own life for the purpose of Christ and serving the church, you should respect those men. He doesn't say worship them. He doesn't say bow down before them. He doesn't say idolize them. But you are to honor them. You're to honor them. You're to give them the place in your estimation, your mind, your affections, your attitudes, that which is um, comparable to the proven worth and stature of their lives and their ministry to you. That you are to value men and women like that um, in your lives. You're to show them the respect um, that is due to them. That if you have that type of man or that type of woman in your life, then respect and esteem them. Again, why? Because of the mission that they had, because of the man that they were, the woman that they were, and they did it all for the work of Christ. So we see the man sent, we see the reasons defined, and we see the command that's given. And we could spend more time on that, but it's, it's time to move to application. Really just have one line of application, and we'll hash it out in different ways. Um, and that line is, is the line that I've really already given you, you know. Number one, and the only point, although there'll be many sub-points, that we should see Epaphroditus as a picture of a true man. And a true minister, not a perfect man, and not a perfect minister, but a real man, and a real minister, a godly man, and a godly minister, and thus one to be followed, esteemed, and imitated. And that if you have a proper view of such a man, and you should respect him and honor him such as, not only to say I respect and honor you, but in some capacity to follow him. And if you truly respect a man like that, then you desire to emulate a man like that. Because of his true value and his true worth. 
that true value and that true worth, of course, is only, you can only throw it so far as he emulates Christ. But that's what we find in a man like Epaphroditus. A man like Paul. A man like Timothy. I hope a man like me. A man like you. You know? I think we live in a sad day in which we're not either following anyone or we're following the wrong men. I believe it's true for any individual. Maybe this is something for you to, to meditate upon. I believe it's true for any individual, for every individual, and for even entire cultures. Um, that those that we consider to be our heroes tell us much about ourselves. You know, those whom we respect, those whom we esteem, those we admire, those whom we praise, will tell us volumes, not only about them and those men, uh, but it will tell us probably more about us. It reveals what we value. What we respect. It not only tells us what kind of person they are as we exalt them, but it also tells us what kind of man we are. Thus, I would cause, I would ask you to, to entice and examine your own heart. I would entice you to examine your own heart and ask, like, who are those individuals within my life, my culture, within my life and my church, and within my life and my community? Um, who are those that, that, those that I, am, I am tying my affections to and my mind to, reasoning through such that I am following after them? And then evaluate that man, because in the evaluation of that man or that woman, you'll evaluate yourself. Because you'll be answering the question, what do I value? What do I uphold? What do I respect? What is truly important to me? Um, that's what I, that's, man, that's a, that's a, a an investigating question. <laughs> Examining our own heart. And then say, I have no one. That's telling as well. You know, I can't think of anybody that I actually emulate. You know, that, that almost tells us something about ourselves as well. Is there no one to follow? Is there nothing to value? Are we apathetic and indifferent? Are we so independent? Are we so um, removed and, and hurt by the church and by the world to think that there is no one worthy? There is no one to follow? Um, I think that that's just, if not more damaging as well. But we see here, I would commend again to you, Epaphroditus and men like him, to follow after. Boys, a true man ought to be followed after. Um, Epaphroditus ought to be emblemized to some extent and imitated. What do we see in a true man? A true man, number one, um, is a man who's converted. No man will ever be the man that God intends for him to be until he is in Christ. Number one, you know. You may be wondering, like, I don't know why I can't be like my dad. I don't know why I can't be like that person. I don't know. Like, I, I keep striving after. I keep, I keep wanting to please. I keep wanting to do this or I want to do that. And it may be that you need Christ. You know, none of us are the men that we ought to be. Epaphroditus was not the man that he, he, he could have ever been um, without Christ. Christ is the truest man. Christ is the man that enters into the world and is the man that we cannot be. And he lives out the life that we would not in our total rebellion. Why? To make us true men. To bring us from death unto life that we may serve in a capacity that is honoring to God. That Epaphroditus is nothing to exalt in. That, that we, we, Epaphroditus is just a point, a finger to point towards that. 
person of Jesus Christ. But Epaphroditus and men like Epaphroditus, Timothy, Paul, myself, you, we are only as good as we picture Christ and our example to others. No man can muster it up in and of himself. He cannot be good enough, skillful enough, intellectual enough, strong enough. He can't pull himself up by his own bootstraps. The truest of men are dependent men upon Christ. They're humble men. And they're men with, uh, with, with broken and contrite spirits. They're not men who muddle through and just push on. Who, who, are, who, who carry no affections. Um, they are men who are brought low that God may bring them high. They're the truest of men. Are men who know Christ. No man too is a true man unless he is um, a man. Um, no man is a true man and cannot be the man that God intended him to be until he's brought into the family of God and into brotherly bonds with other men. I mean, it's there where men learn to be men. And I understand there's always exceptions. I understand that some live in a life of isolation and God blesses, but I'm going to tell you the overwhelming pattern is is that the reason that we are in the condition that we're in today, not only in culture but also in churches, is because there are no men, seemingly no men to follow. Men are living in isolation. They're living independent, individual lives. They don't see their connection to a church. They don't see their example as something that is desirous nor necessary. And they don't see their contribution to the body. They don't see the harm that they are in their apathy and in their indifference. And thus, we all just cultivate more men like that. You see, the problem is not that there is no discipleship within the church. The problem is, is that there is discipleship and that men are learning from men who don't want to learn. So we're producing more men like us. You know, apathetic and indifferent men who don't need or want to be examples. The problem is that there's no discipleship in the church. The problem is that the discipleship that does happen happens by virtue of example and it's bad and poor example. And thus we are cultivating and creating men. Just as Timothy to, is, 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 Paul is born in Timothy through a life together. Our boys and our girls, our young men and our young women, and our young men and women within the church are, 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 are becoming like those who go before them. You know, it's not, I used to think no discipleship, but the, but the reality is, and no example, but the reality is, is that, that there is example. I mean, it's negligent and it's abrogating duty. And it's producing more men and women like that. The true man, the most men need other men. And you need to be those men. I don't want to be that man. I don't care what you want. You have to be that man. You know, God has placed you here. You're necessary within the body. And you affect the body. You know, uh, whether you go or whether you stay, whether you move forward, whether you back, um, you are an example. And it's either a good example, a bad example, a faithful example, or an unfaithful example. Number three. A true man is a, is a man who has learned to submit to others. That's what you see in Epaphroditus as well. Epaphroditus was a, a man that was subject to the oversight and the government of the church. Um, he's not a self-proclaimed Christian or a missionary. He's not um, a rogue Christian. He's chosen. He's selected um, for a purpose. He's sent back. He's a minister. Um, listen, young men, young women. Until you learn to submit to the authority over you, you'll never be a true man or a true woman. True man is not one who can puff out his chest and beat and he's stronger than everyone else. And God has ordained authority over you for your good. You're not to be a law unto yourselves or a caricature of rebellion and that is promoted even today among the conservative circles. Rise up and rebel. Um, learn to submit. Learn to embrace. Boys and girls, learn to embrace. Learn to live. Learn to love. 
um, the heart of, of the government of your mother and father at a young age. Learn to submit, boys and girls. Learn to listen to mommy and daddy. And learn to love it. Learn that they are a gift from God. That they are not someone that is trying to ruin your day. Or to press upon you tyrannical um, boundaries. But, but they are, are there as a gift from God to restrain you from foolishness and to instruct you in righteousness. The writer of Hebrews as well, the writer of Proverbs teaches us that children without fathers are cursed. And the sad reality is, is not that there are only tens of thousands of orphan children in the world without any discipline, instruction, or love, but that there are functional orphans without fathers possibly even within this church. Um, either because there's rebellion against authority or within the fathers and mothers there is really no authority or discipline at all. Um, you are not loving your children, if that's the case. And most of our, much of our culture is just being born in hate of authority of their father and mother and are just as cursed as those who are without. And it's maybe even worse because um, they're rebelling against it day in and day out. A true man, a true woman, sees the necessity of authority. Epaphroditus was sent by Philippi. He was sent back by Paul. He was a submissive man. Um, also, a true man sees himself to um, others in respect to others, in particular in service to the temple of God. Um, Epaphroditus was a, was a minister, a fellow soldier, a fellow laborer within the people of God, within that temple. Um, he saw himself as a minister within the temple of God. Also, a true man is a man of character and one who should be esteemed because he is the right type of man. Um, that's what you see. You see a man here that is willing to lay down his life for Christ, that they may be willing to lay down their life for others. He was engaged in the work of Christ, laying down his life for Christ. How? By laying it down for Paul. By laying it down for Philippi. His service to Christ was wrapped up in service to others and to the church. Matthew 25, uh, 35 through 40, go back and read it. Jesus, in, in essence, is saying that you'll stand before me one day and there will be a reward or there will be punishment. Why? Because you did or didn't serve me. And that will be manifested in the way that you serve his servants. Um, that's the idea. Also, a true man is a man with true concern. As evidenced by sharing in their distress and joy. And we'll, we'll finish with this point. Because I know that I've labored long enough. But I, want to, I do want to emphasize this. A true man is a man who has true concern for others. And it's evidenced by sharing in their distress or in their joy. True love is more than just saying I love you. True love is in some sense the ability to enter in and share with another's emotions and feelings. And you're able to feel what they feel. This passage shows us an amazing display of the empathetic quality of, of all the people of God in true love. And that gave the Apostle Paul so many censors that stretched across the world and was able to enter in with the Philippians as well as Epaphroditus. Now, he embodied those. Did you know that those are commands? Weep together. Rejoice with one another. Did you know that that's not just a natural temperament? Now, some people are generally more empathetic than others. They are generally more emotional and affectionate than others. But did you know that God commands not only our hands but our hearts? And that one day we'll stand accountable to, to, to God one day because we were not uh, weeping with our brethren. That is an imperative. It's not a suggestion. 
that, that as you're brought into relationship with God and with Jesus Christ, you're brought in relationship with one another um, in such a capacity that as you cultivate the graces of God in your life, God cultivates you in you a concern for one another such that when they enter into sorrow, you do as well. Did you know that? That Paul had a pastoral heart that was wrapped up in his people that weighed upon him along with his reasonable faculties that actually added to the evaluation of his, his decision to send him back. Did you know that? That, the, that, that, that Paul actually utilizes those means in his decision making uh, ability. That what you don't see here is black and white instru- or, or, or objective data. That Epaphroditus, there's ministry that needs to be done back in Philippi, and without you it can't be accomplished. There's a 90% more um, effect, uh, ability to be effective if you go back. He doesn't reason in his own mind, I need you here more than Epaphroditus does. Objectively speaking, they have enough elders and deacons to where now you can stay another month or two. But actually, with a pastoral heart, the Apostle Paul reasons with log- reasons in himself, but also allows um, the permeation of his longings and affections and entering in with, the, with these people's longings and affections and actually allows that, his pastoral heart, to weigh into the decision that he makes. And that's, that's a dangerous thing to say to a people. You know? Because you might hear, follow your feelings. But that's not what I'm saying at all. Epaphroditus, nor Paul, nor seemingly those leaders at Philippi were unprincipled men following their affections on every whim. But their affections were cultivated by the grace of God and bowed before God in such a way that it was appropriate. Did you know that Jesus was an emotional man? The difference is is that He controlled every emotion perfectly. And that when the emotions were emoted, his affections were, 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 were affected and, and displayed. It was in right submission to the scenario and circumstances. So when he was angry, you better believe he was rightfully angry. And he had every right to express himself in that way. Most of us don't have that ability, you know. And because we are living in a fallen world. And we're living in a fallen flesh. But, but he sorrowed. He cried. He rejoiced, he will rejoice, that in his carnation, what you see are his affections submitting to the knowledge of circumstances in God in such a way um, that he actually enters into um, emoting and displaying and, and reasoning, thus it causes him to do certain things. You know, it causes him to cry out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Was that wrong? You know? Clearly you have to say no. It was the incarnate Son of God who lived perfectly, not only in his actions, but even in his affections. Right? And that the Apostle Paul actually takes into account. You know, it's not just an apathetic, indifferent, kind of cold, dutiful, objective criteria as he sits down and makes decisions. You know what he does? He's, with a pastor's heart, he actually enters into Epaphroditus' life um, and what he, how, and how he understood and what he longed for. And his distresses, he looked at Philippi and he looked at himself and he said, with all this criteria, um, this is an appropriate way to respond. And he does. And he does. The Scriptures make this clear, that we're commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Uh, Hebrews 13.3 says that you are to remember those who are in bonds as being in bonds with them. This is a command. Empathy, in some sense, is commanded. And let me tell you this, it's not circumstantial. It's not to be governed by natural temperament or personality. It is to yield and submit to the very truth of God and to respond as God would respond. 
And this ability is, is not, uh, does not rest in your common experience. It rests in your common relationship with God. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You know, one does not have to have the same experience, although it certainly helps. Some people believe that. I can't empathize with somebody until I've had their experience. You know, we miscarried some time ago, a year ago. I'm so thankful for people who came to us and just, like, wept with us and rejoiced with us, you know. But there's some people who think that they can't because they've never experienced that, you know. Um, God commands it, and you can you know, there's things that we can't, it certainly helps if you have, but that's not a necessity. The problem with that type of thinking is, is that if the basis of our empathy is circumstantial, then really no one can relate to anyone because we are not anyone else. This is the, the battle against even the very word of God in our culture. All right? This is important. All right? This is so important because this is the way the battle has came against the church in so many ways over the last decade to five decades. All right. You're not a homosexual, so you can't understand. You know, I go out to the abortion clinic. Like, why are you here? You don't have a uterus. You have no voice in this. Why? Because you can't understand. You can't enter in with me. You know, you're a man. You can't. So men can't speak into women's issues. Women can't speak into men's issues. And now we've redefined everything to where you can have something so unique that this person is totally independent to where no one can speak truth into their life. It's silencing the Word of God. It's silencing the proclamation of the Word of God. And that's one of the tactics, I think, from the devil from the very beginning. And it, but one of the things that it does is it ruins true fellowship. This is one of the great tragedies of that type of thinking because no one can share with Him. No one can, then can weep with Him. No one then can rejoice with Him because they won't allow them to. We're all different. The basis of our of our of our of our entering in and empathizing with one with another is not a common experience necessarily, although it helps. It's a common fellowship. It's a common God. It's a common relationship in Jesus Christ. That if we are in one another, then we have the ability, opportunity, and the command to weep with one another, to rejoice with one another. How do you do that? The gospel is the one that accomplishes that in us. First of all, you have to get rid of your, your selfishness. You know, no one ever is concerned with anyone else as long as they're concerned ultimately and utmost with themselves. But the gospel preaches this concept just overwhelmingly. I mean, who is it the one that sympathizes with our infirmities? It is God who, actually, Jesus Christ, who enters in as a man and understands, thus you can take any temptation and anything to Him. That, that Jesus Christ is the foundation of our fellowship and our foundation of sympathy and empathy. And that, that we are all tied to Him, the one who understands and the one who comes to. When we can't fully understand circumstantially, God can come to. So you can say thus to anyone, go to Christ, He'll come alongside you, He understands stands. He has a true concern for you. A good example of that is the Apostle Paul here. God mercied upon him. How? And mercying upon the Apostle, upon Epaphroditus. And I'll end with this, and I know that I've labored too long, so please forgive me for that. Um, you say, that's just, it's just not possible. <laughs> you're expecting too much. What you're expecting is impossible. Nobody can live like that. You know, I would lovingly but firmly say something like this to that. Um, 
that consideration, I would hold your tongue because it's borderline blaspheming God. You sound like a great one. This is me preaching to myself someday. So this is me having a conversation with myself. Like, God, I, I don't know how that's possible because I've lived with myself so long. And I have to say to myself, you sound like an ungrateful servant. The ungrateful servant, Matthew 25, that landowner commanded him to take one talent and invest it, and he refused to do so. Why? Because he thought the landowner was a hard and a harsh man. He wasn't faithful. Why? Because he didn't trust the landowner. And it caused him to cower down in fear. He didn't openly rebel and squander the talent. Get that. But he wasn't faithful with it either. He didn't actually believe the landowner. He didn't have trust or faith in him. He was afraid to say, God, I know that you command to do this, but I can't, I can't, is, is to say I don't believe you. And you think he's going to be satisfied when he comes back because you haven't squandered it, but, the, but he's going to be upset because you didn't do with him what he told you to do with it. The reality is it's only safe because you haven't done with it what you're supposed to do. You know why? Because you don't believe God. Listen, it's not, and this will boil it down. All's done, I promise. Two minutes. It's not going to be enough on that day to say, God, I, I didn't cheat on my wife. He commands you to love her. It's not going to be enough on that day to say, I sheltered my kids from the world. He commands you to disciple them. It's not going to be enough to say, I guarded the talents, Lord. He's going to say, you didn't do what I told you with it. It's not going, it's not, it's not going to be only a matter of what you aren't, but what you are. And you must be the type of man that He's commanded you to be. You must believe the gospel that if it was given and secured for your transformation, not only eternally, but temporally, then you now have the ability to fulfill God's command and you need to believe that. You must believe that. It is a reproach upon the gospel itself to say, I can't. It is a low view of the gospel and a low view of Christ to say it's impossible. Why? Because the gospel um, was, was given to procure that, to have a high view of Christ such as that it provokes you to believe God and make you able to be the type of man that you ought to be is in part why Christ died. Thus, thus believe Him and pursue after it. Trust God. Invest the talents. Trust Him that, that, is, that, that, that it is possible. Listen, if God can take a man like Epaphroditus out of a pagan worshiping godless home and transform him into this man then he can take you and he can take me and he can make you into men just like that too and that's exactly what he desires to do and that's exactly why his son came, that's exactly why Jesus Christ came to die and it's time for you to believe it stop hiding the talents trust him pursue God Pursue what a true man he is. And a good place to start this morning is to say, God, God, help me to be like Epaphroditus. Timothy is a man after my own heart. Paul, that's what I'm aiming for and striving after. It's not too big. Why? Because the same God that transformed, saved them and transformed them is the same God that saved and transformed me. Thus, we have grounds to believe. Let us be true men. Let us be true men. Some of you are thinking, I can never be that type of man, and you are bringing a reproach upon the gospel. You're saying, I don't believe God. I'm begging you today, imploring you on behalf of Christ. Believe Him. The gospel is powerful. And it's power, it's powerful enough to take Epaphroditus out of that home and make him into this. A man who's self-sacrificial and willing to give his life on behalf of others, and he's more than willing and capable to do the same in you. And he's able. So believe Him. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You. And praise you for your word and your word alone, Father. We thank you for giving it to us in just an immeasurable fashion. 
We thank you, Father, for preaching and proclaiming it to our hearts this morning. And I pray that you have, Father. And I pray that you continually will. Father, um, I admit to you and my own self, my limitations. um, And walk away on many days wondering, what did I just do? (laughs) At the same time, Father, I rest in your providence and your supernatural work through the power of your Son that you're able to take Father, um, just seemingly unacceptable sacrifices and their sweet-smelling aroma, Father, because they were sacrificed in Christ and for his sake. And I pray, Father, that you would do that this morning. I pray that you would exalt Christ, that you would use him, Father, um, in the word that was given, in the text that was read, in the application that was made, Father, and that you would just push aside any man, any woman, Father, that tries to steal your glory and just change your people for his sake. Father, so use our worship this morning, Father, in every measure, um, in every fashion, and just use it to make your people more like your son. Father, we pray that we've been faithful, and we trust you, Father, um, to continue the work. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing just a verse of number 67. Still my soul be still. Number 67. I pray that you'll sing with the utmost joy and faith for the glory of God um, as we sing the reality of His amazing grace. 67. Still my soul be still. And I pray that you